0: Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We hope that you'll join us in today's broadcast for a few minutes and take a little time out to study from the Word of God, some serious Bible study on the Theological Seminar of the Air. Our lessons for the past few weeks have been on Christology, the study of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have many more of these broadcasts yet to complete. All in all, I would say there are about, in regard to these subjects, there are about 34... Uh, broadcast that will deal specifically with the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've discussed the prophecies of His life. We've discussed the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ. We've also taken time out in the broadcast to discuss the arguments that uh, are brought up by various people uh, objecting to the deity of Christ. We've discussed the relationship of the Son to the Father. Now, lessons on the broadcast today and the preceding broadcast uh, will be blessings that deal with the humanity of Jesus Christ. As we've mentioned before in the previous broadcast, the Lord Jesus Christ was not only God manifest in the flesh, but above all, and primarily on this earth, a human being. He had real human names, a real human ancestry, he possessed a physical nature, and he had a body that was subject to the laws of human development, which certainly is not true of God at all. Now, it is essential for the student of the Word of God who is going to learn the truth, to grasp these matters and grasp them thoroughly. I say this because there is a contemporary Christianity today that majors in not discussing doctrine at all or avoiding doctrinal issues when they come up. This is not to be emulated at all by the born-again child of God, the real believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Christian believer, the man who really believes the Word of God, knows that all Scripture was given to inspiration of God and was profitable primarily and, first of all, for doctrine. Now, the, the mania that people have today for avoiding doctrine, that is, uh, the mania people have today for avoiding the doctrinal issues of the Word of God, comes from the fact that you're living in the day and age that is characterized by a lack of love for truth. Uh, the truth of the matter is, the modern Christian is afraid of the truth. A man said one time, he said, your reason why you're against that Bible is because you know it's against you. And the modern Christian has a horrible suspicion that if he spends much time in the Word of God, he's going to discover some things that run contrary to what he's been taught to believe. Now, I say this, uh, if so facto, as a accepted truth, and yet the fact that I say it doesn't particularly make it true, because there are many false teachers and false preachers today who are up and down the country using this very same gimmick in order to get you into the Bible to teach you something that isn't so. So it's a rather hectic situation, isn't it? You say, well, Brother Ruckman, in view of all these conflicting voices and all these different things, how can I know? Very simple. When a man gives you a verse of Scripture, open to it, turn to it, read it, and number one, see if he's quoted it correctly. Very often you'll find him quoting the word, Kingdom of God, where it should have been Kingdom of Heaven, and quoting Kingdom of Heaven, where it should have been Kingdom of God. Very interesting transposition if you ever heard of one. And then number two, above all, see if the man has quoted the verse in the context in which it appears. Uh, The ancient uh, dictum is still good and holds good always that a text without a context is a pretext, and that's a dying truth. The way to teach false doctrine is simply to take a verse out of the context in which it appears. And by doing this, you make it say something that it does not say. And this is done constantly, uh, perennial, up and down the country these days. All right, now we've been talking about the humanity of Christ. Unless some of you were not with us in the previous broadcast and didn't get a hold of this material, let me go back over it very briefly where you can write down the references and make sure that you have the references that are proper uh, to study. All right, these references we're going to give you now deal with the humanity of Christ, and these come from the previous broadcast where we discussed the matters of His humanity. We noted first of all that Jesus Christ was given human names, Matthew 1.21, 1 Timothy 2.5, Luke 19.10, and Acts 7.56. We noted secondly that Jesus Christ had a human ancestry. Luke two seven, Galatians four four, Acts thirteen twenty three, Matthew one one to sixteen, and Hebrews seven verse fourteen. We noted again that Jesus Christ possessed a physical nature. John one fourteen, Hebrews two fourteen, and First John four three. And finally, we noted that the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to the laws of human development as any ordinary human being. He grew, Luke 2.40. He asked questions, Luke 2.46. He increased in wisdom, Luke 2.52. He learned obedience, Hebrews 5.8. He suffered, Hebrews 2.18. He worked as a carpenter, Mark 6, 3. He grew up in human age to years recorded, Luke three twenty three. And he was tempted, Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11. Now this is the scriptural evidence given for the humanity of Christ. And as we've mentioned before, and shall say from time to time, the way to check a man out in his doctrine is turn to the verse and read it and see if he told you the truth. And above all, observe the passage where it occurs, that is, note the context. A text without a context is a pretext, it always has been, it always will be, till hell freezes over, and the great style these days is to simply quote a verse without telling the person where it's from or what it's dealing with. Now, I'm going to give you two or three examples real quickly before we return to our lessons on the humanity of Christ. I mean, I'm going to show you the kind of scriptural bamboozle that's going on in America today. Here's a man that pops up and says, well, if I speak in an unknown tongue, no man can understand me, and my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. And you know what that fellow does? That fellow makes you think that verse teaches that when a man prays in an unknown tongue that he himself can't understand what he's saying. Do you know how he does that? By simply ignoring the next three verses that follow the verse I just quoted. Now, do you realize some of you people listening to my voice don't even know where the passage is that I quoted, let alone what follows it? Now, isn't that something? Now, I hear a bunch of Christians going around talking about being filled with the Holy Ghost and being spiritual, and you give them a passage, they don't know where the passage is from and don't know what's before it and don't know what's after it. Ain't that a flip? As they say out in the world. Ain't that an as well? like Powder Valley Man. Now isn't that something? That passage that says, My Spirit uh, prayeth that my understanding is unfruitful, three verses later you're told it has to do with your understanding doesn't bear any fruit because the people that hear you don't understand it. Now you see how it's done? It's done a lack of that. Did you ever tell a fellow go to there and quote Acts 2.38 and tell you that's the plan of salvation? Did you ever read the passage? I said I'll do postpaid, I mean, write me here, Box 6021, Pensacola, Florida, or Box 7135. I'll send you a $1,000 cash, man, if you can find anywhere in that Bible where anybody in Acts chapter 238 asked what they had to do to get saved. Nobody in that chapter even asked a question, let alone got an answer. Aren't people weird? Did you ever read Acts two thirty seven, the verse that preceded Acts two thirty eight? I'll bet you there are not five men and women listening to my voice right now that even looked up the chapter. And when the preacher got in the pulpit and quoted it, why some of you folks out there and said, "Oh, that's how you get saved? You repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins." What a joke, man! Well, you talk about a boffer. That's a belly laugh. Why, there's nobody in Acts chapter two asking what to do to get saved. And when they're told what to do to get saved, they're not told what to do to get saved from hell. Simon Peter says, save yourself from this untoward generation. It's amazing, isn't it? So in these broadcasts, we want to give you the Scripture, give you time to get the Scripture, and write the Scripture down. And above all, we want you to look at these references and check them for yourselves, and like the Bereans, search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so or not i continue with our lessons on the humanity of Christ. We have discussed the fact that he had a human ancestry, that he possessed a physical nature, that he was given human names, and that he was subject to the laws of human development. We now face the most important fact of all, the fact that Jesus Christ was moved by the instinct of normal human beings. And in these particulars we find no corollary at all between them and the attributes of God. the omniscient. Omnipotent, omnipresent God, with his absolute infinity, eternity, and immutability, certainly had nothing in common with what we're about to read. To begin with, he hungered. In Matthew 4, 2, we read, when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward hungered. Notice Matthew 21, 18. God doesn't get hungry. The Lord said back in the Old Testament to the Old Testament saints who were offering the sacrifices, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Jesus thirsted. In John 4, 7, there came up a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. In John 19:28, on the cross, he cried, I thirst. You think God gets thirsty? Well, Jesus did. He became weary. In John 4, verse 6, the Bible said Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus in the well. You think God gets weary? He says in Isaiah, he doesn't get weary. There's no searching out of his strength. The Lord doesn't get weary. He doesn't poop out like people do. Jesus got tired and sat down to get rested. He was moved by the instinct of normal human beings. He slept. In Matthew 8 24 we read, There came a great tempest in the sea, insomuch the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Do you think God sleeps? Jesus did. Now you see where we're heading? When we mass up this evidence, produce this massive volume of evidence that proves that Christ was a man, every unsaved liberal in the country grabs it like a dying man grabs a breath of air and says, You see there? He was just a great man that died for what he believed and taught, and if we follow his teaching, we can save ourselves like he saved himself, which is a lie. He was the Son of God, God of manifest in the flesh. And once you produce the verse that deal with the deity of Christ, then the wholeness, oneness, grabs it, or some uh, J.W. grabs it and says, You see there, he was a created God but less than God the Father because God doesn't get tired and God doesn't get weary and God doesn't thirst and God doesn't get hungry. Therefore, Jesus Christ was a lesser God or therefore, Jesus was all God and didn't actually become a man or wasn't a real human being. Then no cure for a Bible-rejecting heretic man. Just leave him alone, man. And if the blind leave the blind, they'll both fall in a ditch. He was the Son of Man and the Son of God. He loved as a man. We read in, Ma- in Mark chapter 10:21 and John 11:36, Jesus beholding him loved him. Then the Jews said, Behold, how he loved him! He had compassion. In Matthew 9:36, when he saw the multitudes, quote, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. He said one time, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered my children together, even as a hen gathers a chicken under her wings. That's compassion. That's a human emotion. That's a human feeling. He was angry and grieved like men get angry and get grieved. In Mark 34 we read, He said to them, Is it lawful to do good in the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? The Bible said He was grieved for the hardness of their heart, and looked about Him with anger. In John 2.16 His righteous indignation was manifested when He cleansed the temple. He manifested reverential trust. In Hebrews 5, verse 7 we read, Who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears on the end was able to save him from death was heard in that he feared. He groaned as a man. In John 11:33, he wept as a man in John 11:35. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 1941. And Hebrews chapter five verse 7 speaks of him making his supplication quote, "with strong crying and tears. Now, this solves a great problem for the Bible believer that he is constantly being harassed with by the infidels and liberals and agnostics and gnostics and atheists, and that is the problem of why the Bible keeps speaking of God in what they call anthropomorphisms, anthropomorphic expressions. That is, why does the, the Bible keep speaking about God being grieved and repenting and sorrowing? Why does the Bible keep speaking of God's eyes and Him smelling a savor? See that business? Oh, if that doesn't turn these birds on. They say, well, that ridiculous Old Testament is speaking about God smelling things, God doesn't have a nose, God doesn't have eyes. Yes, but he does. They're manifested in the man, Christ Jesus. Now, when the Lord pulled this one off, he confounded the wisdom of the wise, and Paul is very careful to outline this for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 where he tells us in no uncertain terms that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and when it pleased the world by wisdom and know not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. My, what a trick the almighty God pulled on men when he came down and limited himself to human nature for thirty-three years. They ain't got that one figured out yet, man, and they ain't about to. The wisest men that ever lived stumbled and broke their neck over that one. There was something Socrates and Plato and Anaximander and Anaximenes and Hegel and James Joyce and Spinoza and Leibniz and Karl Marx and Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky and Engels and Mao Zedong and Einstein and Bush and Russell and uh, Spinoza and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and Carlyle and Tufels Drake and Kant couldn't figure out with a figuring machine. They couldn't figure out how God could speak of himself as having human attributes when he was divine. And they're never going to get it figured out till they get born again. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, and whether that natural man has an M.A. or a Ph.D., or whether he's a high school freshman or a ditch digger, he ain't about to figure it out. When I say ain't about, I mean ain't as in ain't. As in ain't got none, neither, no way. And don't you think, sonny boy, just because you know the Sanskrit roots of the Indo-Germanic languages and because you know the difference between the preformatives and the subformatives on the hith pale, and the puow, and the pale, and the cow, in the jussive and cohortative states, or because you know where the ultima, uh, when the ultima has the acute accent, or the grave accent, or the circumflex accent, because you've got breathing sense. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Ever learning, yet yet never, never able to come to acknowledge the truth. Why well, you got nuts in this country? Think because they know the be difference between superlapseianism and infralapsianism and transubstantiation and consubstantiation. They have good sense. Did you know that? You got people in this country who actually think because they've had 20 years of seminary education and you can talk about irresistible grace and unconditional election and uh, limited atonement, and total depravity, and know the difference between the pseudepigrapha and the antilegum and the home legumina, they're intelligent. Did you know that? The Bible said the foolishness of God is wise in the wisdom of men. The biggest joke God ever pulled in this country was when he sent down a man and let him come on this earth as a baby, when that baby had omnipotence in its glance and the eternity immutability of God Almighty sheathed in its baby arms. They haven't ever got it figured out. And they ain't about to, as they say up in North Carolina. Jesus was a man. When Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping and the Jews weeping, which came with her, the Bible said, quote, He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He wept. He prayed. Matthew fourteen twenty three. when he sent the multitudes away, quote, He went up into a mountain apart to pray. Now, don't tell me that God has to pray. But Christ prayed. There's one whole chapter in the Bible where he's praying. John 17, a prayer to the Father. The whole chapter. Jesus possessed body, soul, and spirit. Jesus had a body. References, John 1.14, Hebrews 2.14, Matthew 26.12. The body was buried, Luke 23, verse 52 to 56. Jesus had a soul. He said his soul was exceeding sorrowful. <clears throat> In Matthew twenty-six, thirty-eight. Jesus' soul went to paradise at death and went down through hell, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 27, Acts chapter 2, verse 31, and according to Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus had a human spirit. This spirit returned to the Father at death, for we read Luke 23:46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That is, he had a trinity, a trilogy, a trinitarian body, and was not only a member of a divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but as a human man had a body, soul, and spirit as any man has, according to 1 Thessalonians 5:23, which says, I pray, God, your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it." (coughs) That isn't all. The outstanding proof that Jesus Christ was a man was the fact that he died. God can't die. If God the Father died, the universe would go out. The Bible says all things are held together by the word of his power. He sustained the universe and said, Someday I'm going to cast it aside like a garment, and it's going to be folded up and changed like a garment. (coughs) The biological culmination of life is death. Man is born to die. One of the philosophers said, They who rightly study philosophy rightly study nothing but death. What man wants to do is get a death where there's no judgment. Man wants a death where he evaporates into a spiritual effusion of a spiritual state where he's at one with the energetic forces of the material universe. He doesn't want a death that's followed by a judgment for sin, and the Bible says, it is appointed a man once to die, but after this, the judgment. The Bible says, So that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The Bible says, The Lord shall bring me the judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Paul said in the day, That God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. You are born to die, and in a Bible death you face judgment. Jesus Christ died. Hebrews 9.27 said, It is appointed a man once to die, so Jesus kept the appointment. He kept the rule that's laid down for all men. <laughs> it's true we have exceptions to the rule, like Elijah and Enoch, but these are exceptions which prove the rule. He died. Jesus met his death by crucifixion on the cross of Calvary in the prime of life. Luke twenty three thirty three says, When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death, not for the elect, that he should taste death, not by a limited atonement, that he should taste death for every man. Jesus came to this earth to die for every sinner on this earth, and death was the major proof of his humanity. There is any indication at all that he died just for the elect, and the foolish people that interpret Hebrews 2.9 in the light of the fact that Christ said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, entirely neglect to tell you that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 he came to give his life as a ransom for all. Many may not be all, but all is many, henny-penny. Folks do have a time with their Bible, don't they? Some of you five-point tulip fellows, you know more no more what you're doing than a three-year-old Eskimo trying to teach Ugaritic or Babylonian cuneiform, and that's a dying truth. He didn't come to give his life just as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom for all. First Timothy 2, look it up. Don't you get mad with me, you bigot. Look it up. You old narrow-minded rascal. Some of you folks are narrow-minded. If a fly sat in your nose, you could kick in both eyes at the same time. You're so narrow minded when you cry, your tears run down your back. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Living in this great <coughs> scientific objective, we're going to the moon, Venus, Jupiter, stupid age. <laughs> oh, the great objective, scientific, logical, positive, so the great empirical scientific, scientific method of objectively approaching the Sonny, can you read? Look it up, boy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he didn't die just for the elect, he came to taste death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Now this brings us to the logical conclusion and terminus of our study on the humanity of Christ. We conclude that Jesus still possesses a body even after his resurrection. When he came up, he said, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me in the sea, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. He told Thomas in John 20, verse 27, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. <clears throat> and much later, in Acts 7, Stephen, at his martyrdom, saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. So Jesus was human, and a human being like us, in all but two points. Number one, he did not possess a sinful nature. And number two, he was sinless, for he never committed one sin. <clears throat> as far as his human infirmities go, he got tired, like we do. He got thirsty, like we do. He got hungry, like we do. He had to eat to sustain his physical body, like you do. He grew up and developed normally as any normal person develops, like you do. He was a human being. And this is proved beyond all shadow of a doubt to anybody who believes what God said. I will give the references over one more time carefully and slowly this time, so you can write them down, and please don't take my word for it. Check every one of them. He hungered. Matthew four two. He thirsted. John four seven. He got tired. John four six. He slept. Matthew eight twenty four. He was angry. Mark three four. He groaned John eleven thirty three. He wept John eleven thirty five. He prayed, Matthew fourteen twenty three. He had a body, John one fourteen, Hebrews two fourteen. He had a soul, Matthew twenty six, thirty eight. He had a spirit, Luke twenty three, forty six. And above all, he died, Luke 23, 33, Hebrews 2, 9, and he still has a body according to John 20, verse 27, and Acts 7, verse 55 and 56. Now, this concludes our broadcast on the humanity of Jesus Christ. The facts are established beyond any matter of controversy in the Word of God. And the whole issue, once again, is resolved into simply this. You either believe what God said or you don't. And if you don't, it's a free country. And if you do, it's a free country. But there isn't any question about what the Bible says. The Bible presents Jesus Christ as a man, as well as God. God manifested in the flesh. That is the Bible teaching on the humanity of Christ. And it doesn't teach anything else, no matter who thinks whether it does or whether it doesn't or who taught you that it did or that it didn't. That's what it says in regards to this most important subject, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our next two broadcasts, we'll take up a very important subject in Christology. We'll take up the study of the very important subject of the sinlessness of Christ. And this belongs to the study of Christology proper, which deals with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On our next broadcast, we'll take up the Bible testimony and the Bible teaching on the sinlessness of Christ and what the Scriptures have to say about this very important subject. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.